Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary, Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include my interview with AIER economist Peter C. Early on the FOMC's crystal ball and what to expect from future meetings, the market's wild ride on Monday, and does anybody want to help me in organizing a 10K race in San Jose that we can call the bank run? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'd like to thank today's podcast sponsor, Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit richiemay.com. Remember the margin calls faced by lenders during the big price rally in March 2020? If the MBS market moves much more, they'll be back. Worries about warehouse funding and liquidity? They're back. Because warehouse lenders are banks and banks are under pressure. Risk-free treasury rates typically drop when there's bad news, like pandemics or bank failures. For example, U.S. employers cut 77,000 jobs in February, more than five times the amount a year earlier, bringing the total for the first two months of 2023 to the highest level since 2009, according to Challenger Gray and Christmas figures. The rise was mainly due to widespread firings in the technology sector. Chair Jerome Powell indicated the size of the next interest rate increase has yet to be determined. Quote, We've not made any decision about the March meeting. We're not going to do that until we see the additional data, Powell said, testifying for a second day before the House Financial Services Committee. However, Powell's recent comments have indicated that the Fed may need to raise interest rates higher than officials had initially expected. But then the Silvergate, uh, Silicon Valley Bank news hit, driving rates back down. Volatility is not a capital markets person's friend. Against this backdrop, lenders and vendors, big and small, are continuing to merge, acquire, or be acquired. Including yesterday, we learned that publicly held Guild Mortgage continued its series of strategic acquisitions, announcing it had acquired Cherry Creek Mortgage, a privately held Colorado-based lender with 68 branches in 45 states. With the acquisition, Guild now has more than 300 branches and 4,000 employees in 49 states. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show Peter Early, an economist and writer who joined AIER in 2018. Prior to that, he spent 20 years as a trader and analyst at a number of securities firms and hedge funds in the New York metropolitan area, as well as running a gaming and cryptocurrency consultancy. His research focuses on financial markets monetary policy, the economics of games, and problems in economic measurement. I should probably note that this interview took place prior to the bank failure, and everyone now believes that the Fed will react to that. So I just wanted to mention that before uh, airing this for you. So minutes from the February FOMC meeting revealed that the decision to raise rates 25 basis points was not unanimous. What does this disagreement among committee members signal to you? I think uh, the disagreement signals a few things. Um, first, I think it highlights the exceptional nature of the current economic environment, really. We've been 40 years, it's been 40 years since we've had substantial inflation, which means that coming from different prior experiences, all these members are likely to view uh, the circumstances and the uh, policy course differently. Uh, I think it also reflects views about the Fed mandate to one extent or another. 
Um, those with a a broader view of the obligations or mission of the Fed are probably more inclined to balance concerns about volatility in the financial markets with stable prices than those that are, for lack of a better term, hawkish, um, which here I'm using as a synonym for traditionalist or purist in that the Fed's goal is to keep prices stable. We can, we're can. we constantly receiving new data, and, and I guess the narrative of late is an economy that that seemingly is starting to slow, but but not quite at the Fed's, not quite to the pace of the Fed's liking. And what's your take and prediction on the trajectory of inflation over the, the short and medium term as a result of that? Over the medium term, I think inflation is going to prove stubborn, even as disinflation continues. I think disinflation is going to proceed more slowly. The last time we had inflation of this magnitude, uh, the U.S. was more of an industrial goods producing economy than a service economy. So I don't think our understanding, and that's not just the Fed, that's myself and everyone else who's an economist or involved in economic sciences. Um, I think our understanding of inflation in a service dominated economy uh, is not especially well informed. Um, over the longer term, I see one of two possibilities, really. It seems obvious, but either the Fed will manage to get the price level down which will likely cause either a serious economic slowdown or recession, because we're seeing that right now is pretty resilient growth. Um, but I also suspect that if inflation slows at the 5 to 6% level, it'll be even stickier at the 3 to 4% level. And what matters is how much the Fed is willing to, how far the Fed is willing to go, or how much it's willing to break the economy to get back to the 2% level. And there's a chance that at some point they'll simply say, good enough, Three to four percent is the new inflation target versus the former two percent range. So, based on what we've seen lately, are the the worries about stalling disinflation merited? You you mentioned stickiness there. Worries about stalling disinflation are, are, are clearly merited. It's funny because I spent years in the financial markets, and we used to describe the price action in assets, stocks, commodities, etc. In the following way, we would say up a ladder down a chute or up a ladder, down a slide. In other words, markets slowly climb a wall of worry, but when trouble comes, they decline like grease lightning. And the opposite is the case for inflation for various reasons. Inflation tends to rise quickly, albeit with some lag after the policy measures, the expansion of policy measures that cause them, and then decline slowly, right? So some of the reasons for the slow decline is the tentativeness of contractionary policy, because there is inherently a political dimension to it. Um, there's an inexact nature of economic policy, uh, in particular monetary policy, and there's factors like sticky wages and prices. Firms are typically slow, understandably, to lower prices, and some prices get locked in at higher levels by purchase or sales contracts. Some wages are solidified in labor agreements or other contracts. So the longer it takes for inflation to get back to lower levels, and preferably levels they were at for years in the past, the longer consumers are going to suffer under those higher prices. And the more likely it is that the budget changes they make with prices rising become permanent changes. That is certainly a, a merited worry out there. So I, I think it begs asking, if the FOMC had known about the recent sticky CPI, higher than expected PPI numbers, upward revisions to previous PPI releases and strong retail sales, do you think the most recent rate hike would have been 50 basis points? And why or why not? I absolutely think if they had known about all the strong data and the upward revisions in various inflation numbers, um, the hike would have been 50 basis points. And I also expect that if the consensus would have been 50 basis points, we might have seen at least one advocate 
return uh, or, or recommend returning to the 75, at least one 75 jumbo basis point hike, uh, such as the contractionary campaign started with. Um, one, one of the lessons we've learned, perhaps are being are being retaught as a better description, is that these meetings that we're used to seeing a month, six weeks, eight weeks apart in various uh, policy arenas that seem like they're too frequent during calm times, feel like they're far too long uh, spread out or far too widely spread out uh, during times of crisis. The difference between the outlook of the previous FOMC meeting and the upcoming one is going to reflect very different circumstances. It will be a very different meeting. So as a quick follow-up, if if the Fed goes back to a 50 basis point hike or even a 75 basis point hike at this next meeting, would that throw financial markets into disarray? What would, what would be the, the shock reaction in your opinion? I think we would uh, right now there's a uh, there's a question in financial markets as to whether to assume a risk on or risk off basis. I think uh, um, uh, if we were to see uh, a 50 basis point hike or I think it's unlikely, but even a 75 basis point hike, we would see immediate risk off. We would see uh, the market probably equity markets probably uh, resume uh, the slide from last year. And uh, we would probably see uh, a lot of uh, movement into commodities, that sort of thing. So I think uh, I think that would be sort of the decisive um, uh, policy move that would allow a lot of uh, market participants um, and financial institutions that are currently uncertain to uh, take a solid position that uh, this is going to go on for a while and that uh, we are almost a, certainly at that point would be facing a recession. What are your thoughts on possible disruptions to key U.S. financial markets, such as concerns regarding the Treasury market and the effects of a protracted debt, debt limit standoff in uh, Washington? So my view is that we're still seeing a lot of posturing on opposite sides of the aisle um, and that fundamentally neither party wants to be the one on whose watch the U.S. government defaults on its obligations. They can still play chicken for a while, but letting the U.S. default on its obligations would bring a lot of problems and would, to say the least, drastically alter uh, the trajectory of the U.S. economy, probably for generations. Uh, the Fed could, you know, in, in that case, the Fed could step up and purchase U.S. government debt if markets for U.S. Treasuries dried up. Uh, but that would be an extremely detrimental policy choice when at the same time um, the Fed is undertaking contractionary policy measures, um, including attempting to run off the Fed balance sheets and all that. So that would be uh, it would it would certainly add a, a another dimension to the current uh, economic troubles that the U.S. and much of the developed world was facing. Yeah, we certainly don't need more economic troubles. Uh, you mentioned stickiness when it comes to inflation a couple times in this interview, and, and I want to ask what you think the effects will be of more contractionary policy measures from the Fed going forward. So every month at AIR, I publish a short report called Business Cycles Monthly. It contains three indices. Each one uh, contains a different type of indicator, leading, coincident, and lagging. And I score these from one to 100 based on the number of indicators which are rising, falling, or in a neutral trend. Um, in January, the overall BCM was profoundly neutral. The leading indicators were at 58, and both the coincident and lagging were at 50. Now, this isn't a crystal ball, and economic factors can and do change on a dime, but in light of monetary aggregates turning negative uh, for the first time in 30 years, higher CPI, higher PPI, uh, higher PCE readings, the downward revision of the fourth quarter 2022 GDP suggests to me that the Fed's going to continue to raise rates and we will have a recession of some magnitude 
over the next 24 months. That's my uh, that's my expectation for uh, the outcome of contractionary policy measures uh, presently. So I, I have one bonus question for you here, actually, and and I'd like to let the record show that when I was in middle school, Freakonomics came out, and I remember reading it and thinking, "This is so freaking cool." Uh, you know, these these things that these behavioral economists study are amazing. And you're an economist yourself. And, you know, when the MBA comes out with their weekly mortgage applications, their chief economist will opine on on what it means. What does it take to be an economist? What What is the daily life of an economist look like? What sorts of things are you monitoring? I came to this after spending over 20 years as a, in the financial markets as a trader. So, my perspective is probably different than other people's. Um, I originally started out with a degree in engineering and I got an MBA. And then it's only later that I got a graduate degree in economics. So for me, I come to these things from the perspective of a trader. Uh, I'm always looking for, say, um, pilot fish in the market or uh, that sort of leading indicator that's going to suggest what's going to happen. I think it's uh, an interesting uh, profession, if you like, following a story, if you like a narrative, if you like seeing, uh, if, if you enjoy standing in a room with 10 other people or nine other people, seeing a phenomenon and listening to all their explanations and then going through all the details and ferreting out what you think is relevant, what you think isn't. Um, it's kind of like being a detective at times. So uh, I enjoy it very much. That's how I uh, view being an economist. But some of my friends who have either, you know, either went to grad school in their 20s or came to it later uh, after being uh, economists in, say, a uh, corporate environment or a financial analyst, that sort of thing. We all sort of see it through the lens uh, that we uh, came to it from. Well, I certainly appreciate your thoughts on the current market and, and the Fed's impact on it. And I want to thank you for making the time to talk to me today. This was great. Thanks for having me, Rob. Appreciate it. Markets went for a wild ride on Monday after worries about the health of regional banks carried over from last week. Treasury prices soared due to a flight to safety in global markets, including the yield on the two-year Treasury note plunging 57 basis points in its biggest one-day slump in decades. The situation introduces new Fed policy headaches, and rate hike expectations have been slashed with many predicting that the FOMC will not raise the Fed Fund's rate range on March 22nd. The Fed Fund's futures market, meanwhile, still sees nearly a two-thirds implied likelihood of a 25-basis point increase. The banking sector news overshadowed the latest payrolls report to close last week, in which we learned that total non-farm payrolls were higher than analysts' expectations for the 11th consecutive month in February, coming in up 311,000 versus an expected 200,000 gain. Once again, leisure and hospitality accounted for the most significant gains, adding 105,000 jobs. The labor force saw 419,000 increase, which put the participation rate at a post-pandemic high of 62.5%. While an acceleration in early retirements during the pandemic may make it challenging for the participation rate to reach prior highs, the increase in the number of people in the labor force could help ease wage pressures. Average hourly earnings growth eased to a 3.6% annualized rate in February, job openings declined 3.7% in January, and the number of open jobs per unemployed person fell from 2.0 to 1.9. The number of job openings continues to be nearly double the pre-pandemic average. The Fed will need to see continued softening in the jobs market before they are comfortable pausing the current monetary policy tightening cycle. 
Today brings the all-important, though maybe less important now, CPI for February. Inflation registered up 0.4%, about as expected, and up 5.9% year over year, with core up 0.5%. Real weekly earnings were down 1.3% when they were expected to fall 0.3% after increasing 0.7% previously. We've also received the NFIB Small Business Optimism Index for February, and later today brings Redbook Same Store Sales. We begin the day with agency MBS prices worse an eighth, and the 10-year yielding 3.57 after closing yesterday at 3.52%. The two years at 4.25%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Today is pie day, and uh, let's, let's go with some pie jokes for you. Pi, whose symbol is the Greek letter pi, <laughs> goes on forever with computers having calculated over 1 trillion digits past the decimal. Do you know that statistics show that 3.14% of sailors are pirates? Pirates? <laughs> what did Pi say to its partner? Stop being so irrational. <laughs> and what is the ratio of the circumference of a jack-o'-lantern to its diameter? Pumpkin pie. Obviously. <laughs> Thanks again to Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit richiemay.com. Questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities? Send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.